Okay, let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, we come to you and would recognize your glorious character, your sovereignty. We confess that as we stand before you, we stand in awe of who you are, the greatness of your power, as well as the greatness of the love that you have shown us by not letting us remain in our sins, not turning us away from yourself, but actually pursuing us who have been so sinful and rebellious against you, pursuing us and changing our hearts and drawing us back to you. We thank you that you have loved us in this way, in a redemptive way, and that love has brought you to even humble yourself to take on our nature and to come into this world and to die for our sins. And we do love you because you have loved us this way. And we ask that you might increase our love, help us to understand you better and your ways with men, that we might more fully adore you and obey you and bring glory to your name in the way that we live. We thank you for your word, precious gift that we have received. And we do ask that you would give us a greater understanding of it tonight as we study. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews, the second chapter, and I can promise you, Lord willing, I don't feel over before the end of the hour, we're going to finish chapter 2 tonight, finally. I believe that we left off at verse 16 in our exposition at the last Bible study, but I would like to read the entirety of chapter 2 again just so we have the context before us. And so Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord was confirmed unto us by them that heard? God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by manifold powers, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. For not unto angels did he subject the world to come, whereof we speak. But one hath somewhere testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. For it became him from whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, 
Behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. In this fantastic chapter, which is so full of uh, important theological truths, the author has come toward the middle of the chapter to talk about the incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ. He tells us that it was appropriate, it was appropriate that God should secure salvation by taking on human nature and suffering and dying and rising again, of course. And we have this threefold quotation from the Old Testament that already indicates that God is not ashamed to, um, to lower himself to the level of human nature. Um, as the uh, quotation from Psalm 22 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, will I sing thy praise. God is going, there's going to be a day when God himself would be able to call us his brothers. And the way God did that, of course, is by taking on our nature, not by our taking on his. He took on our nature in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus, the perfect man, and our Savior, is not ashamed to call us his own, his brothers. Verse 14, we learn that it's just because we share in flesh and blood that he in like manner partook of flesh and blood. Only if he did so would he be able to die. And of course, death is the penalty for sin. And um, if God is going to pay the penalty for our sins, then he must take on human nature and be capable of dying in order that he'll provide the substitute that we need, the perfect sacrifice in our place, the one who will die for us. And in so doing, in dying, Jesus actually made death die. He took away not only the power of death, we will be victorious over death. Satan no longer can threaten us because of death. But he also took away the psychological trauma, the anxiety and the fear that death represents. Um, he mentions people being subject all their lifetime uh, to the bondage of the fear of death. And we've been removed from that. Okay, so that brings us up to verse 16. This is where we're going to begin this evening. And in verse 16... He says, For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. Actually, um, my translation uh, picks one of two possible ways of translating the Greek. More classical um, translations of the New Testament, older translations, and older interpreters, church fathers, um, interpreted it somewhat differently. The vast majority of modern translations do what mine has done. I have the American Standard Version of 1901. 
and it takes the Greek here for to give help to someone. Actually, the Greek literally means to lay hold on. To lay hold on. So let me read it with that translation. For verily not the angels has he taken hold of, but he has taken hold of the seed of Abraham. Now you see, to take hold of, if you follow that out in Greek, can mean either to take hold of someone in a friendly way, to grasp someone or to embrace someone, or it can mean to take hold of them in a hostile fashion. It depends on the context. Uh, in classical interpretation of the New Testament, it was, uh, in tra- it was translated to mean that Jesus has assumed their nature for verily not to angels has he assumed their nature. That's a rough way of putting it. That is, it's not the angelic nature that he has assumed. He's not laid hold of that for himself, but rather he has taken hold of the nature of the seed of Abraham. The other way to translate to take hold of means to take hold of for the sake of helping, to lift up, to bear up, to encourage or assist. And so, um, as I've already read here, not to angels does he give assistance for his help. Now, which would we prefer, given the context? Which of those interpretations best fits the flow of the argument? Is the author more likely to be saying, for it's not the angelic nature that he took on, the rather human nature? Or is he more likely to be saying, for it's not the angel that he gives help, but to humans that he gives help? Yeah, I think probably the first would have to be contextually preferred because he's talking about Jesus assuming human nature, not being ashamed of that, and calling us brothers and so forth. Now, the other fits perfectly all right. In in a sense, the bottom line in both interpretations is going to be the same. Um, And that is that God's concern is with human nature. And angels are subordinate in God's concern. And the reason why this has been necessary to say, and it's been said many ways over again by the author, is that the readers of the original epistle were tempted to think that the angels had a superior place. Go back to verse um, 5 in chapter 2, and here's this, this declaration standing all by itself, or so it seems anyway. The author says, for it's not unto angels that he subjected the world to come. I mean, don't get any grand ideas about angels. Angels aren't going to be the ones who govern the eschatological age. But see, that's exactly what the Qumran sect, the Essenes, the Dead Sea community, taught. They taught that angels were going to have this superior place in God's redemptive plan. And so the author is trying to say, don't be tempted to go back into the Jewish ways and to worship angels and give them this high position. Christ it's more important than an angel. Christ is the one who has all things subjected into his feet, and Christ is on human nature, not angelic nature. And taking on human nature, Christ has actually lifted us up above the angels with him. So that the angels are now ministers of God waiting upon those who will inherit salvation. Now that's really... Um, if, if we can have our traditional reserve just taken away from it, that is fantastic. I'm above the angel if I'm a Christian. If I'm in Christ and he's been lifted above the angel, 
human nature has been glorified in him for my sake and yours. Now, when you think about what angels have done in the Bible, um, we might, you know, tend to be tempted. Uh, we could be tempted to that Jewish uh, notion of elevating them. I mean, they're, they're pretty mighty. They're, they're pretty glorious creatures. They do some pretty remarkable things. But we're above them because we're in Christ. And so I do think that first translation is probably the best. However, I wouldn't say that the other is impossible. Um, what the author is saying, one way or another, is let's stop focusing any hope for deliverance upon the angelic realm. Angels are not delivered, nor is their nature the way in which God is going to deliver us. Either way, we see the marvel of the incarnation. But now there's something... Go ahead, Joe. I'm, I'm wondering um, if there's some relationship between this particular discussion and what you said earlier um, in, say, verse 5 and so on, and all the idea of um, the elemental things of which some discussion of the elemental things of the world. And yes, I think there is. Yes, I think there is. Um, what Joe's referring to is that... Um, Elsewhere in the New Testament, both Paul and Peter, as a matter of fact, and the author of Hebrews, too, but Paul and Peter make the point that Jesus, by his resurrection and ascension, has been lifted up above all thrones and dominions and powers and all those angelic spirits, good or evil, that uh, occupy this universe with us, and that Christ is now Lord over all, including the spirit realm. And um, this would encourage us to think that we too have been lifted up as Christ because Paul says in Ephesians 2 we are seated with him in the heavenly and if we are seated with the ascended Christ and he's ascended above the angelic realm then we are ascended above the angelic realm spiritually speaking there's another thing in verse 16 that I want to talk about for a little while and that's that when the author speaks of human nature as it has been assumed by the Savior, or human nature as it's been assisted by the Savior, whichever translation you prefer. He doesn't speak of human nature, he speaks of the seed of Abraham. This is one of the positive proofs that the book is written for Jews, by or converted Jews, because um, you wouldn't likely, in writing to a Gentile, make the point that human nature is the seed of Abraham. And you see how it just fits so much better that he's talking to Jews. Christ was humanly the seed of Abraham. We see this emphasized in the New Testament, Romans 1, or Matthew 1. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. The point is that Jesus descended from Abraham as to the flesh. He is a child of Abraham. And I think the reason the author stresses that is because it is crucial to see the incarnation in the context of God's covenant. Now, since we're all Presbyterians here, then hopefully there's an appreciation for this. But outside of our circles, uh, and even sometimes in our circles, there's not much of an appreciation for how much everything God does is covenantally structured. You see, God did not promise that he would come into this world just on some kind of individual basis kind of like I negotiate salvation on a one-for-one -one basis, you know, with every individual. God thinks in covenantal terms. God works in covenantal terms. And the reason Jesus came into the world is because God chose a people, a people 
that are going to be his. And if they are now lost in sin, and the only way they're going to be redeemed is going to call for the incarnation, Jesus comes into the world to fulfill the promises given to the fathers. It's because God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he will do these things that Jesus must come. And so therefore the author of Hebrews, since he really sees the importance of that, Jesus took on not angelic nature, but he took on the seed of Abraham's nature. He came as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. In Galatians 3.16, which I want you to turn to, Paul is going to make a special use of that theological truth. And I have to be careful not to run out of time by just looking at Galatians 3.16, because it's fascinating in itself. But let's take a moment or two anyway. Paul says, Now to Abraham were the promises spoken, and to his seed. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. In the context, Paul is reminding us that God made a covenantal oath. God made a promise to Abraham. And for those of you who are interested in dispensational um, uh, polemics, every time this language is found in the Old Testament, the promises of the land of Palestine. And it's definite that Paul was referring to the Abrahamic promise that he would have the land of Palestine. And now Paul says, by the way, you notice that the promise was to Abraham and to his seed? Whoa, Paul says, notice, not seed, not plural, seed, singular. And now I've got to do a parenthesis before I finish. Anybody who tells you that verbal inspiration is not important, take him to Galatians 3.16. Because Paul tells us that this crucial theological truth rests upon one letter of the alphabet in English. One letter of the alphabet. Is it seed or seed? Is it singular or plural? And on just the difference between the singular and the plural, Paul's going to rest his whole argument. Now that may be embarrassing to people who don't want inerrancy and verbal inspiration, but you see, for Paul, every little detail counts for. Now what does this detail count for? He says that shows the promise never was intended for Abraham's children in the plurality. It was for one child of Abraham that this promise was intended all along. One seed of Abraham. And who is that? He says that here. Who is Christ? It's to thy seed. Who is Christ? Christ is the one who fulfilled the Abrahamic promise. When God promised to Abraham any number of things, including the land of promise, the land of Palestine, that was a promise made to Jesus Christ and fulfilled in him. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul tells us that howsoever many may be the promises of God, they are in Christ, yes, and amen. The affirmation and confirmation of all of God's promises is in Jesus Christ. Well, if you're a dispensationalist, think about this. If you're a dispensationalist, you can't believe that. You can't believe that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Because if you're a dispensationalist, you think some of the promises are yet to be fulfilled in the plural seed of Abraham. There is a separate plan for Israel. And by the way, that's you say, but Jesus is part of that plan. Oh, only so far, not completely. Because in that plan, there's going to be a rebuilt temple in the land of Palestine. And there's going to be a reinstitution of animal sacrifices, according to dispensationalism. 
And when that Jewish temple is rebuilt and those sacrifices are offered, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, will Jesus be able to function as a priest in that temple? No, he won't. Because he's not of the Levitical order. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Dispensationalists are going to build a temple, they think. They never will. But they think they're going to build a temple and keep the Lord of glory out of it. They're going to keep the one who is the Shekinah glory of God out of the temple. That's horrendous theology. Not only that, they're going to offer animal sacrifices after he has put away animal sacrifices once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. And so so this is crucial that we get this right. Christ fulfills all of the promises, not the Jews, but Christ. They said, well, but how's the land of Palestine? How's that promise fulfilled in Jesus? Well, you do a little more study of the New Testament, and you see that the authors of the New Testament had an answer to that, and it's a beautiful one. In Romans 4, Paul says, the promise was made to Abraham that he would become the heir of the, anybody know? The world. The world. Now, has Paul just momentarily forgotten the language of Genesis? Abraham wasn't promised the world in Genesis. He was promised Palestine. Paul knows that Palestine, though, is what? Part for whole. Palestine is but, you see, the token of the broader picture. Abraham was promised the kingdom of God. And Palestine is only a little picture of the promise of God that he would bring a kingdom into this world. And that kingdom was intended to take over the entire world, as a matter of fact. And Peter tells us in his first epistle that though the Old Testament Jews had an inheritance which passed away and which was corruptible and had all these difficulties, we now have an inheritance in Christ which is better than that. We have a heavenly inheritance. The kingdom of God is going to give us a permanent possession which will not be corrupted and will not pass away. And so everything that Abraham looked forward to was really a token of the coming kingdom of God and particularly the eternal order. Okay, now, did they have the right to say that? What did Hebrews say? What did Abraham look for according to the book of Hebrews chapter 11? He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Abraham looked beyond Palestine. He looked to the kingdom of God. He looked to the, to the kingdom God would build, to the city that he would establish. So anyway, back to Galatians 3. Paul is right. Even that promise of the Lamb is yes and amen in Christ, not in the Jews, but in Jesus Christ alone. And so, when Jesus took on human nature, you notice he took on the seed of Abraham's nature. But how about us? Before we move on, one more point. How do we fit into this? Aren't we the seed of Abraham? Galatians 3 that I just quoted at the end of Galatians 3, goes on to say, and those who are of faith are the seed of Abraham. But he has just emphasized there's only one seed. That's right. And the only way we're going to inherit the promises of God is if we are joined to Jesus Christ. If we belong to him by faith, and the Holy Spirit has united us to him, then we too are the seed of Abraham. But we're the seed of Abraham in Christ who is the perfect seed of Abraham, through whom all the promises were made. So promises come to me from the word of God only through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Only as he is my Savior do I have the promises of God's word. Now you knew that anyway, but you know, there are a lot of people who think they can appropriate truths from the Bible and get blessings from the Bible and look to the promises of the Bible. 
But they don't have to worry about Jesus Christ or faith in him. The Bible is some kind of you know, magic book that just gives us all these goodies. Uh-uh. This book focuses on God's covenant, and particularly on the mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we don't have any of the promises coming to us. Well, I told you I'd be going, and we didn't finish, so I'm going to stop and move on. Verse 17 in Hebrews 2. Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a good 50-page essay right there on that one verse. Look at what the author says, how much it contains. It says it follows from the preceding discussion. That's why the word therefore is therefore. It follows from the preceding discussion that Christ had to identify himself completely with the mankind that he came to rescue. Wherefore, it behooved him. It was crucial. It was necessary that in all things to be made like unto his brothers. And the author says that he had to assume not only a true incarnation, meaning a true body with flesh and blood, but notice this, he had to be made like unto them in every respect. Jesus, forgive the informality of this, but you've got to understand how important it is. Jesus was not just some inflated body. Jesus had feelings. Jesus had a human nature, just like yours, sin apart. Jesus had feelings. We have a real erroneous idea, psychologically, that feelings are a form of weakness, that if we really were strong and had no problems and everything were in order in our life, we'd never have any passions, we'd never have any weaknesses, we'd never have any, you know, anger wouldn't overcome us, and despair wouldn't overcome us, and all the other things with our feelings and uh, emotional state. That's not true. Jesus took on human nature, and it wasn't because of sin that feelings are there, it's because that's what it is to be a human. And the Bible tells us he didn't just have a body, you know, some kind of static, divine nature inside of this body that is flesh and blood. He's making sure everything went right. No, Jesus actually had feelings, emotions, like our own. It was necessary that in all respects, in all things, he be made like unto his brethren. And again, notice we are called his brethren. Verse 11 tells us that uh, the one who um, sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one, and therefore he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus calls us his brothers. And if we're going to be his brothers, he wants to feel what we feel and to go through what we go through. It was just this likeness to us, by the way, that qualified him to be our high priest. The author says, It behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brother, brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. This is the very first mention in this epistle of the title, High Priest, for Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews is the only book in the entire New Testament that discusses the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. So it's rather significant. It's kind of like, you know, if we were doing a movie, this is the time where the music in the background better start building. 
high priest. You know, because you know this is really important in the theology of the book of Hebrews. And where does it come in in terms of being able to sympathize with us? It was necessary that in all respects he would take on our nature, that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest. Very simply put, representation assumes identification with the one represented. If Jesus is our high priest, that means he intercedes for us to God. But he cannot intercede on our behalf unless he is identified with us. You can't call in some third party that has nothing to do, you know, with the two parties that are being reconciled. Jesus must be, if if he's going to be an appropriate mediator and high priest, he must be human. But of course, if he's going to intercede to God effectively, he must be divine. And so he must be a God-man. But right now the emphasis is upon the fact that he identifies with us that he might qualify as our high priest, having taken human nature. And now the purpose of the high priesthood is stated that the high priest ministers in the things pertaining to God. In the Old Testament, you may remember Jehoshaphat's reform. Maybe you don't. Jehoshaphat brought Israel back to worshiping God. He didn't perfectly do this. He didn't tear down all the high places, but he did a good job of driving out Baalism in uh, Judah and so forth, and he brought Israel back to God, and he got the temple service going, and he restructured the courts in Israel, Judah, and in the courts, he distinguished between the things pertaining to the king and the things pertaining to Jehovah. And the high priest in his order took care of things pertaining to Jehovah, whereas um, the heads of the houses and, and judges that were appointed uh, took care of things pertaining to the king, what I think is a prototype of the church-state separation, as we see it even in the Old Testament. But here we're reminded the high priest deals with things pertaining to God, and in particular deals with propitiation. What does propitiation mean? I'm going to ask you. knew this was coming, didn't you? You've probably been looking it up and thinking, okay, David, what does propitiation mean? <laughs> the reason we're chuckling is we studied this for quite a while in Sunday school back when I was teaching the high school Sunday school class, so don't let your teacher down. Okay. If we say that the attributes of the human nature are true of the person, but they are not true of the divine nature, and if the attributes of the divine nature are true of the person, but not of the human, then we aren't crossing categories. So we are saying there's a mysterious person here who has both kinds of attributes. Now I say, do you understand that? If you say no, well, thank you for your honesty. That's pretty mysterious, isn't it? But what I mean is, do you understand that the difference between the Lutheran and the Calvinist is that we don't want to confuse the two natures by saying that you can combine those attributes in, in a way which makes the human divine and the divine human. See, God did not die upon the cross. We've discussed this before, right? A God-man died upon the cross, but he died with respect to his human nature. He didn't die with respect to his divine nature because God can't die. In 
so, we want to draw a distinction. So we don't want to say things are true about Jesus with respect to his human nature, true with respect to his divine nature. Now, is Jesus temptable? Could Jesus have sinned? Is that all you want to say, Sam? <laughs> he didn't have a sinful nature, but could he have sinned? Could Adam have sinned? So we know that he said it. Now, did Jesus receive a true human nature? <laughs> See, now we still have someone who's tending toward Judaism here in our group. Judaism <laughs> is the monophysite heresy that when the two natures are combined, they become one nature, namely divine. The two come together and the divine, as it were, absorbs the human. And so when it comes to the temptability or the ability to sin for Jesus, then as I think we're all tempted in this way, so I'm not at all criticizing the cat, but the temptation is to say, well, of course not, because he was God. But take seriously his humanity. Yes, he could have sinned. And the glory is not that he was tempted, but of course there was no question that he couldn't. The glory is that he could have sinned and didn't. He took the place of Adam and passed the temptation. Now, of course, it's equally true that as God he could not have sinned, but we must say if we take seriously the Incarnation, as man he could have. With respect to his human nature, yes. With respect to his divine nature, no. No, no the point is that the real answer is yes and no. Oh, why not? Oh, okay, so let me ask you this. Now, now that we have a yes or no logician in our midst, uh, <laughs> yes or no, could the God-man die? I don't know. Did Jesus die? Did he die on the cross? How do you define that? Oh, so now you're going to draw a distinction. So his body died, which is my equivalent of saying his human nature died. But you want to say what? His divine nature did not die, right? I didn't say his human nature died. I don't know. You're getting me terribly confused about it. Okay. Let's, let's find out where the confusion comes in. Is it because we have, not, we have a difficulty knowing how the divine and human come together? in Christ, the mystery of the hypostatic union, or is it that we don't understand some of the implications that are drawn from that? Even if I don't know how God did that. I don't know how God predestines everything and leaves me free and responsible. But I know how to draw the implications properly from that in terms of biblical teaching. I do know that I give glory to God for the good in me. I take responsibility for the evil in me. I know that all things will work together for good. I mean, if I can go on, I can draw the right conclusions from this even if it's a mystery. Now, the Incarnation's a mystery, to be sure, that you have a divine and human nature in one person. But what I want to know is, can you draw the right conclusion? And so I ask you, Amy, could Jesus have died? And I think if you're going to be biblical, you're going to end up saying yes and no. Jesus, the person, died, but not with respect to his divine nature. He died in his human nature. Because the divine can't die. 
Well, when you say he didn't really die, you're still insisting that there has to be a yes or a no, or else my reason's not satisfied. And it seems to me there's another possibility, and that's that you can draw a distinction. You can maintain your logical consistency by saying, yes, with respect to A, no, with respect to B. So I'm not really contradicting myself, but I am granting that there's a great mystery because both of those things are involved in one person, Bob. Well, I, yeah, there's all sorts of problems with saying that he didn't really die, but I know Amy doesn't mean that, so I didn't bother to pick up on that. Ron? Okay. The human nature involves all those attributes which are essential to humanity as distinguished from deity or the animal world or the vegetable world and so forth. Now, what would we include in human nature? Well, a human body, obviously. But human nature includes a mind and a will and emotions as well. And so that's what I mean by human nature. But God, of course, doesn't have a body. And we do speak of God having a mind, emotions, and will, but we usually are being anthropomorphic when we do that. God clearly has a much different kind of uh, spiritual nature than we do. We don't want to say that our spiritual nature as humans is just like a slice out of the divine nature. What we want to say is that we are a replica, an image of the divine. Man is the image of God. But he's not God. It isn't like God is in him. Likewise, when Jesus took on a human nature, those immaterial aspects of human nature, mind, spirit, will, emotions, what have you, he truly had as a human being. They were not replaced by the divine nature, the spirit of God. Um, there's a name for the heresy that says otherwise, by the way. It's called Apollinarianism. Apollinarius said, Jesus received a human body, just like kind of an empty shell, and instead of a human mind and spirit, he received the Holy Spirit of God. So he had the Logos within him for his mind and spirit, which means he wasn't fully human. He was partially human and fully God. The Council of Chalcedon, however, insisted, and this is one of the crucial uh, church councils, uh, ecumenical councils that defined the faith for us, insisted that Apollinarius was wrong and Arius was wrong too for having Jesus being partially uh, partially divine and fully human. You can't have partial and whole. It's whole and whole. He ha is completely God and completely man in one person. Now go on. You have, not that that settles all the questions, but I mean that's right at the end. Human nature includes mind. What's that? Yes. Yes. He had a human nature and a divine nature. No, because in human nature it includes body. Nature means what is essential to the thing we're talking about. What is its nature? And well, we're going to cover all the tough questions in theology here tonight eventually. To be created in the image of God, I believe, means to be the replica of God on a, on a creaturely level. Well, creatures have spirits, so it includes spirit. But everything God is without a body, we are with bodies. He sees without eyes, we see with eyes. 
we reason to we reason with brains and finite minds. He reasons, but with, not with a physical brain or a finite mind. When you say all inclusive, you just said what I said. It is all inclusive, divine and human. Well, wouldn't you? No, no, because you're assuming that the human spirit is of the same sort as the divine spirit. It's just we've got, I guess, a smaller quantity of spirit. It's in the same category, the same type of thing. But the human spirit... Well, we're not talking about bodies, we're talking about spirits right now. Okay, my human spirit is different from God's in a number of ways. One, his spirit controls all of creation. Mine doesn't do that. His spirit is morally perfect. Mine isn't. He knows everything. I don't. I mean, do I have to go on and on? I'm telling you things you already know. There's clearly a difference between human spirit and divine spirit, isn't there? And now the question is, which did Jesus have? And the orthodox answer, and I think it's biblical, is he had both. He had a human nature, fully human nature, and a divine nature. Everything that includes. So he had two spirits. Okay. Yeah, well, I could have brought up that. Temptability and knowledge are the two real difficult things, and it's a good question to give to candidates. The last theology paper I assigned was on just this question we're discussing tonight um, in, in Presbytery. Uh, we have a candidate who has to tell us now what does the communicatio et imadium mean for Christ's temptability? Could he have sinned or not? But you're right. Another question is, did Jesus know everything? Well, he said he didn't. He said he didn't know the time of his return, only his father did. Okay? And now, I'll, I can cut to the bottom line and tell you the answer. It's easier to accept if I work it out step by step, and you get me and say, yeah, I guess you have to say that. But it's kind of shocking. The answer is, he did know and he didn't know. He knew with respect to his divine nature, because the divine nature knows everything. What Jesus was saying is, in my human nature... I could know that, but I choose willingly to subordinate my will to the Father's, and in my human nature, I don't... It's kind of like the information's in the closet, and I don't go and I, I don't look. Jesus says, in subordination to my Father, I don't know the time of the second coming. But that has to be a perspective of human nature. Yeah. No, I would, I would say the divine nature could not sin in the incarnate Christ. Could the God man Could the God man die? How do we have people coming out of Westminster Seminary? You can't answer these questions. Yeah, I mean, it's because we are. It's because we have become so accustomed to lazy and easy answers. It takes a lot longer to say, well, he could die with respect to his human nature than his divine, and it takes some thinking and categorizing. 
And we don't like to do that. We like archaeology. Well, they want to. Well, they want to. As a man. Now, let's, well, let's remember this. That the human nature Jesus received was not a sinful human nature. Jesus was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had a body that could die and have a cold and hungered and thirsted and so forth. But he did not have a sinful nature. He had an unfallen human nature. He had Adam's nature before the fall. Did he move back and forth and use those natures then and they said he could read their hearts? No, I believe that was his divine nature reading the heart. Because it's not part of human nature to be able to read a heart. Well, no. See, I, I, I want to answer that he could read hearts in terms of his divine nature, but not say he's just like a light switch. He can't, it's, is it on or off now? You know, he was always divine and always human. That's right. That's, of course, that's part of the creed of Chalcedon, too. That he is fully divine and fully human without interruption of either one, without distinction, I mean, without separation, division, or mixture. That's a huge... That's right. Exactly. Good. I'm glad, that's a good way to bring this up. With respect to the second coming, he could have known that in his human nature, but he chose not to. In obedience to the Father, because he, he came to this world subordinate to his Father. Now, is he subordinate in his divine nature? Here's, here's a good open door for heresy. You want to say that Jesus was subordinate as God to the Father? No. He was subordinate as the God-man coming into this world for the sake of things. His, his divine nature willingly humiliated itself, taking on a human nature and obeying the Father perfectly for the sake of our salvation. So if the Father said, you will not in your human nature know the time of the second coming, Jesus says, I won't take advantage of my divine attributes to find out. But it's not that he moves back and forth, it's that he says, God and man, but as man, subordinate, and as God too, subordinate to the Father's will. I don't want anybody to get the idea that we're talking about tonight is just a piece of cake. You know, so the fact that, I, that I'm trying to give quick answers that we're moving through this does not mean that it's easy. And so if you're sitting there saying, boy, it sure is mysterious, well, join the rest of the crowd. It is mysterious, but it's not the mystery of logical contradiction. It's not the mystery of confusion. It's just the mystery of I mean, if that, if that bothers you, that I can't tell you how God did it, then how did God make the world out of nothing? You know? How did God make the dead body of Jesus rise? How did Jesus become incarnate? I mean, all of the major parts of Christian doctrine are a mystery. As Herman Bavink said, Christian theology begins and ends in mystery. It doesn't mean it begins and ends in confusion or contradiction, but it's certainly mysterious. Joe? Um. In terms of implications of in the likeness of sinful flesh, it's obvious that Christ isn't, isn't uh, like him, is and enticed by your own lust. Isn't there something that the condition of sinful flesh is one of suffering temptations that are not normal to the, to the perfect human condition? In other words, Adam, Adam didn't go through a grinding 
I think you should call the situation you're talking about a complication rather than a new category of temptation. What, I mean, you're, you're talking about what you and I and the rest of us all experience, and that's that we not only are tempted, but we're tempted all the more because of our previous weakness and failing. Okay. Now, Jesus wasn't tempted in terms of his previous weakness and failing. That's true. But it's important for us then as, as the Orthodox theologians to say that that kind of temptation is still of the same order and category as regular temptation. It's just, it's, it's like a factor of it. It's like you have previous sins complicating the fact that I'm tempted to sin again. But I never should have been tempted, I mean, I shouldn't have given into the temptation in the first place. I have my, my bad record working against me. But the temptations are the same order. Yeah, normal development is involved with this one. That's good. Well, I know we've run out of time here. I, I want to finish verse 18 real briefly because it's interesting theology and it's important theology. But there's something real personal that I don't want us to miss. And that's that the author is telling us just because Jesus had a complete human nature and was he suffered temptation, really and honestly suffered temptation, just as we do, it's for that reason he's able to help us. You all know what it is like to feel a kinship with somebody that suffered what you suffered. All right? Let's say you've lost the loved one. Maybe uh, you know a father or a mother. Within a year of that, if someone you know loses a father or a mother, you feel really close to that person because you've got a common problem that you've dealt with and that has really brought you low. Now think about this. Magnify this all the more. Jesus knows what we're going through. He suffered what we suffer. He's been tempted in all points like we have, and so there's a kinship between us. And the Bible encourages us that Jesus sympathizes with us. I know what it is. And just because he knows what it is, he can help. The help which Christ offers us as we struggle with sin is not just the help of man to man, though, as you might go to someone who has lost a loved one as you have and offer help. But the help that Jesus can give us is now the help of a Savior to a sinner. Jesus says, I was tempted like you. But I can help you, not because I fell, and I can say, well, I know what it is to sin like you. It's because I was tempted but didn't fall. And that's tremendous. Much better than the help of a Christian who comes to say, yeah, I've sinned like that too. It's terrible. And, you know, let's see if we can pray together and work on this together. Jesus comes and says, I was tempted, but I didn't fall. And I'm here to help you. And there's two kinds of help Jesus offers. And I don't want us to lose sight of this. First of all, the help he offers is that he forgives us. Get rid of our works righteousness orientation. Don't think that the help he gives us is that he says, okay, you've made all these past mistakes. Let's see if we can make up for it. Let's do better. I'll help you. I'll be your coach. I'll help you a lot. No, 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 no. That won't do any good. The first thing I need is to get my past record remitted, wiped clean, taken care of. We have a hard time as Christians being forgiven. We still tend to want to suffer and to do for ourselves what is necessary to satisfy God. We say, yes, God, I've been bad. I've done these things. I'm really sorry. I'm going to try real hard now to counterbalance that. As long as you keep thinking that way, you're not thinking biblical thoughts. You're not thinking 
in terms of a gracious God. God says, the help I offer is first and foremost to tell you it's forgiven. And it's forgiven, it's forgotten, it's past. And that's great help. Um, I've been thinking of all sorts of illustrations all day, and there's a brilliant of them, this may not be the best, but can you imagine the help you would need if you had been in some terrible automobile accident with legal ramifications and complications involved? You really did do the wrong thing? Now, you'd need a lot of help. What if someone showed up, though, and said, by the way, don't worry about the legal side of this. It's forgotten. Now, you do need to learn not to make this mistake again. You need some help learning to drive or to follow the rules or whatever it may be. What a load that would lift off you. Because you're not worrying first and foremost about, now, what happens when I get in the car? Am I going to have another accident? You're thinking, how am I going to take care of all the mess I've made in the past? Because Jesus comes and he says, I know what it is in that situation. And because I survived, I can offer you the help of forgiveness. And then being forgiven by the power of my spirit, I can give you help to begin to grow in holiness and learn to conquer those temptations and those sins that have so easily beset you in the past. The doctrine of the incarnation, then, should not be seen simply as a kind of a piece of paper theology. You know, you can write the right answers down on a theology exam telling us about the nature of Christ. I hope that you, as you leave tonight, at least though you may have theological questions, and that's fine, that your hearts will be changed to know that there is a God who so loved us that he took on human nature, and in taking on human nature, suffered what we suffer so that now he can help us. Mercifully and faithfully help us. And uh, I don't know, that just overwhelms me. Any questions? I've kept you longer than I should. And I'm always apologizing for that. I start living up to my apologies and not do it. But uh, if you don't have questions, then let me close in prayer and then anyone who needs to leave can. Lord, thank you so much for loving us with an everlasting love, a love that not only goes from eternity past to eternity future, but a love that is so deep that you were willing to come into this world and take on human nature. And we are humbled by that, and humbled all the more that when you took on human nature, you did not take on a glorious position of power in this world with kingly might and splendor, but you took on the form of a servant. And when you died, you did not die with great glory and nobility, but died a criminal death. We thank you that in the process of being humiliated, you suffered temptation, even as we suffered temptation. Above all, we thank you that you did not give in to those temptations, that you were tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. And therefore, we are confident that as you went to the cross as our great high priest, you went so to propitiate God for the sins of the people and not for your own. And so we can have confidence in you, both that you sympathize with us and you can effectively forgive us. And I thank you for the comforting truth, strengthening truth. We ask that they might become an anchor of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.